Welcome to Album Clash, the podcast in which we take two albums that share a connection and pit them against each other inside the ring of death. Two albums enter, only one may leave. Metaphorically. This is Album Clash. Hello, this is Album Clash. I'm just a poor boy, though my story's seldom told. I may be a poor boy, but my name is still Kev. You thought I was going to repeat myself from last week, didn't you? No, would I do that? (laughs) I didn't think you were going to do that. I thought you were going to um, refer to Biz Miller or something like that. (laughs) No, different song entirely. Uh, Hello, everyone. Welcome to Album Clash. This is the second part in the first Clash in our season of Famous Musical Cities. Kev, remind us what The Clash is and what you're going to be taking us through today. So The Clash, uh, last week, if you recall, uh, we went through Portishead's Dummy and we this week we will be going through fellow city dwellers, fellow Bristolians, uh, Massive Attack and their second album, Protection. Except that Portishead aren't actually from Bristol, they're from, as the name would suggest, Portishead. <laughs> <laughs> they are linked by the city, like Porter's head. That's like that's like going. I, yeah. I don't know. Heighton isn't. Pos- that's exactly what I was going to say. It's like saying Heighton isn't in Liverpool. <laughs> Which, if you want to go to the Blue Belt and tell them that they're not part of Liverpool, then Tim Page Moss Ultras, mate, Baron Park. <laughs> <laughs> Good times. Uh, no one knows what we're talking about. Shall we move on? <laughs> No, we, I mean, we go niche most of the time, but like we've like an area of Liverpool and a very specific <laughs> part of Liverpool. It's suburb of Liverpool. <laughs> yeah, okay. So Bristol, Portishead, Massive Attack, and that's where we are. Should we do some video kill the radio star though? I really want to get into this, yeah. Yeah, so this was my choice. And uh, my choice is the video for This Too Shall Pass by OK Go. Single was released back in 2010, the video directed by James Frost. You may be familiar with OK Go, you may not be. They had gained some fame, uh, you know, a bit of a reputation for really innovative sort of single take videos, which really kicked off in 2006 with the video for the single uh, Here It Goes Again. So you may well have seen that one. It's where they are all doing a coordinated dance on treadmills. And it's great. I would imagine anyone listening to Album Clash will probably have seen that because it was everywhere at the time. It was. Even The Simpsons did a parody of it. So, yeah. Although bad Simpsons, not not good Simpsons. Simpsons after it had gone shite, exactly. So that video actually features in the one we're talking about today, this too shall pass. Very briefly, yes. Very briefly. So the reason I wanted to talk about this video, so it's very much takes that one take tracking shot concept and runs with it. And wow. So <laughs> would you like my would you like one of my notes from, from there? Yes, please. Best ever screwball scramble. <laughs> See, I've said best ever game of mousetrap. <laughs> It's it's essentially the like yes. roughly the same thing. So the video is an elaborate Rube Goldberg if you're in the US or Heath Robinson if you're in the UK machine. That is a complex chain reaction type machine, uh, which is designed to achieve a very simple task, like the end of Mousetrap, which never worked because something would always 
you know, the, usually the diver would fall off for no fucking reason. Or you, you were just missing a bit. <laughs> you were usually the crank. <laughs> that was the bit. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure we ended up Jimmy in a paperclip in there. It's a substitute <laughs> for the crank. Anyway. Um, okay. The machine, it starts off with a toy car you know, which triggers some dominoes and goes all the way through the, the song. Some of it plays in time and even in, in the melody of the song, which I'll come to in a second, to achieve the very simple task of releasing some balloons and shooting each of the band members with paint guns. It's brilliant. So just some of the facts. The Heath Robinson machine, 700 household objects, a course that extends to over half a mile in length. It took two days of filming and nearly 100 takes, of which only three were successful in terms of the machine completing its run through. (laughs) And after every take, it took a team of 30 people to reset the machine in time for the next take. All that for four paint guns and some balloons. But do you know what? Spectacular. It is, isn't it? And, you know, they are a band who have very much embraced the art form. Mm -hmm. And, like, I'd never, never seen this video before. As I say, that I I was aware of OK Go, and particularly that sort of mid-2000s period, they were very prominent with innovative videos and things that became viral. But I hadn't heard heard about them for for quite a while, and... um, yeah, I, I like the song, but the video is fucking great. It's brilliant. So I hadn't seen the video either because my initial thought was I wanted to hear it goes again. And then it was one of those that I was watching the video to hear it goes again. And I saw the link to this as the, you know, watch next. I watched it as like, fucking hell, this is the one we're yeah, doing. You made the right choice. <laughs> yes. So as you said, the song's really good. And I, so there's there's a part in it where there's glasses of water that fill up. And it's basically played like a glass harp in tune with the melody of the song. So it's, it's so cleverly done. The song's good, but the video is just something else. Yeah. And so you said that they made a name for themselves. I think what they did, so as I mentioned, here it goes again, was 2006. That was really at the time when YouTube was starting to take off. And they, they saw what was happening in terms of viral videos, in terms of how things get shared. And it's a great way to raise awareness of your art form. Really clever. It's a good song, but the video's phenomenal. Yeah, I can't, cannot disagree with that at all. One of the most spectacular videos that I've seen in quite a while. So as always, we'll uh, we'll tweet out the link to that. So go and check it out yourself because it's an absolute treat. Yeah, it, it's a belter and not one that I knew of beforehand. No, likewise here. Um, okay. Do you want to start getting into protection, or is there anything else you want to go through? No, I think that I think we should um, start on the background to protection. All right, off you go. So, um, as ever, we um, start with the factual details. So, protection um, recorded between sort of ninety three and ninety four, released on the twenty sixth of September ninety four on Wild Bunch Records, um, which was a an imprint of uh, Virgin. And really, in order to start talking about how this album came about, you've got to talk about the previous album. 
You have. Yeah. So the previous album, Blue Lines, was massively influential, like started off the whole concept of the trip hop movement. It established the band, um, the band made up of Robert Del Nacher, or better known as 3D, Adrian Tricky Thors, Andrew Mushroom Voles, and Grant Daddy G. Marshall. So that was Massive Attack. And on Blue Lines, the majority of this sort of vocal content that was non-rapping, the more soulful sound, so Unfinished Sympathy or Safe From Harm, mm-hmm. um, was done by Shara Nelson. And she was, you know, she was a huge element to that debut album. She really was. But in the aftermath of the release of the album, she got, unsurprisingly, loads of offers. And she decided, do you know what? I'm going to go do my own solo stuff. So there's there's two sides to this story. So Shara Nelson says, I didn't have a sudden attack of ego, but I wasn't getting a fair day's pay for a fair day's work. And that's why she moved on to, to Pastures New. Massive attack themselves. Their view was that they'd had Sharon Nelson on a retainer and that she'd done quite well out of the band and then she decided to go and that they'd lost a lot of money. So I I don't know what, what the truth of the matter is. Yeah, only the protagonist involves know what actually happened. But Sharon yeah. Nelson decided to go her own way. She got a solo deal. The, her solo album sold a, a respectable amount. You know, it did all right. And it was nominated for the Mercury Prize. So it was critically acclaimed as well. Yeah, so, you know, she, she, she'd she done well. In the period after Blue Lines, the band goes to the US to try and make it, to try and break themselves, <laughs> and it does not go well. A familiar tale. Yeah. So they turn up on MTV Raps, and Dr. Dre is hosting, and this is a big opportunity for them. And uh, Robert Del Naha, um 3D, like, so he's asked, who's your favourite rapper? And he says, as a joke, Vanilla Ice. <laughs> That's a good joke. It's funny. Yeah. <laughs> but this this did, didn't really work. Dre didn't take well to it. No. So, you know. Imagine if he'd said Ice Cube at this time <laughs> in 1991. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, they did a series of gigs in America where, and they were used to sort of just DJing and doing a sort of sound system thing. And they didn't put on a show and they got booed. Like they were really chaotic shows. It didn't go well. So the band kind of comes back from America with their tail between their legs. They've lost their lead vocalist sort of thing, or at least the soulful elements of the band. And then their manager, their producer and co-producer all kind of, for want of a better phrase, fuck off and go to work on Naina Cherry, mm-hmm. <laughs> who we mentioned last week. So, um, so as I said, so so their manager was Cameron McVeigh, who, who was Naina Cherry's husband. And um, yeah, his decision, along with the the producers of Blue Lines, was to go and focus on on her career. And as I said, Jeff Barrow was one of those engineers who made that move as well. So the band lose their manager, their producers, their lead singer, and they're a bit kind of unsure what they're going to do. And at this point, they put a put out an advert in the music press asking to you know try and get a a singer to come in to come in and do something for them, and. 
it was slightly difficult. Um, so the process of finding a vocalist after Nelson left in a select interview, um, 3D says that they put this ad in the music press and they said they were looking for a Tracy Chapman, Aretha style singer. Mm-hmm. And they got loads of white fellas with quiffs who were sort of country <laughs> and Western influenced. <laughs> I mean... Without wanting to be too dismissive, it's hard to imagine how those sorts of fellas would be able to sing like Tracy Chapman or Aretha, but anyway. But what they they managed to link in with their former... So before Massive Attack were Massive Attack, they were the Wild Bunch, and mm-hmm. they were involved with the producer Nelly Hooper, who at this stage is fucking huge. So he's produced Bjork's debut, and sort of 94 is doing Madonna's bedroom stories. Bedtime stories. Sorry, bedtime stories. <laughs> and there's a there's a funny story in the sort of up, run up to sort of the recording and the release of uh, Protection that the band go out to America and 94 is the is the year of the US World Cup and Madonna has a World Cup party. Massive Attack managed to somehow, through whatever means, finagle themselves uh, tickets to the World Cup final and have an in, have a invite through Nelly Hooper to attend Madonna's World Cup party after the World Cup final. Fair play. They do not attend said party because <laughs> they got themselves absolutely battered <laughs> because they went to the World Cup final and decided to go out and have a fun time. Fair enough. You've been to the fucking World Cup final. And the 94 World Cup final was not, let's say, a classic. So you'd have wanted to fucking have a drink to forget about what you've just seen. Yeah. So they went out, had a drink. They missed Madonna's party and the chance to have an introduction. um, And then they flew back the next day. Brilliant. (laughs) Yeah. But what what they do is they they do get Nelly Hooper involved who takes on production duties and they decide to bring in a cast of different vocalists. And this is something that Massive Attack adopt as their MO going forward, really. Yeah. So 3D, again, um, so we thought it would be more interesting to go with a different approach like we did with Tracy Thorne and Nicolette. It's different from the first album because of the way we had to work around their voices. Tracy's quite intense and emotional, whereas Nicolette's more dreamy. It's not an album that takes you into the extremes of excitement. It keeps you on a moody vibe. And having these different vocalists and, you know, Tricky is involved. He appears on it. It's the last Massive Attack album that he appears on because he goes off to record Max and Kay and Max and Kay does amazingly well. (laughs) But brings in Tracy Thorne, Horace Andy, legendary reggae singer, and Nicolette, um, a Nigerian-British um, performer who does an amazing job. She does. They'd also worked with Horace Andy on Blue Lines as well. Um, mm-hmm. So they get this um, this way of this way of working, I and mean, it you know it, it works well for them. So something I should have brought up a little earlier when I was talking about Blue Lines. Um, Nena Cherry, we talked about her her family, her home, uh, in the importance of uh, the recording of uh, Dummy. And it had an importance in the recording of Blue Lines. So Blue Lines was recorded in their house, wasn't it? As, uh, yes, yeah. it was. Yeah. Very well. So Mushroom describes the room that they recorded Blue Lines in as the poo room. <laughs> 
because <laughs> one of Nena Cherry's kids' nappies got trapped in the air vent and then they fucked off for the summer. And so the room they recorded <laughs> blue lines in just stank of her child's shite. <laughs> How does a nappy get stuck in an air vent? So why haven't you removed it before you leave? Exactly! Just get a fucking screwdriver and take the vent off and reach in and get the fucking nappy. Jesus Christ. So what you're saying is they should have called it poo lines. Hey. <laughs> what we've learned from this is Nena Cherry doesn't clean up very well before she leaves the house. <laughs> no, clearly not. If someone's sticking fucking dirty nappies in the air vent. Maybe that's what a buffalo stance is. <laughs> <laughs> Bravo, sir. Well done. <laughs> oh, dear. I mean, they could have just opened the vent, as I say. It would only have taken him seven seconds. Hey. <laughs> so that's in terms of in terms of backgrounds and sort of interviews to it. Like, so I was directed to an Irish massive attack website where they um, scanned a load of interviews from the time, and they're really hard to follow <laughs> because, yeah. like, basically, massive attack go down the pub with a load of journos. And he's 94, so, like, they're on expenses, so they don't really give a shit. And, like, so one interview, I think, with Select, they go down the pub, and then they fuck off to a a hotel (laughs) and go in a jacuzzi for a bit. Yeah, it's Which basically sounds like like the band just went, do you fancy going to a jacuzzi on expenses? Yeah, sounds... It's one of those albums that you expect to see more written about retrospectively, but there isn't. No, and I think it's because the first album is the first album, mm-hmm. and then the third album takes them into the mainstream. You know, Zidane and Adidas adverts. Of course, for the 98 World Cup, another World Cup reference. One thing we haven't mentioned is that for a period after the release of Blue Lines, around the time of the first Gulf War, they changed their name to just Massive. Well, that was because of the BBC. Oh, right. Okay. So the BBC would not announce their name as Massive Attack because the, there was some kind of weird rule ruling that they couldn't say the words Massive Attack during the Gulf War because the connotations with obviously the Gulf War going on at the time. So <laughs> they would only refer to themselves as, as Massive, yeah. <laughs> I thought it was some sort of weird protest against No, no, it's, it, it's, it was pure BBC. Oh. There nonsense. So, um, BBC nonsense, Kev. It's not Operation <laughs> U Tree. We've discussed that. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear, dreadful humans we are. Dreadful. Um, no, uh, you're right. There's not a great deal retrospectively been written about protection because, as you said, it's sandwiched in between two really iconic albums. So, um, but yeah, to be fair, we've pieced together quite a lot of stuff there. Yeah. Okay, so before we get on to how you first came across the album, the cover, it follows the theme of Blue Lines in that, like, it has this kind of, it essentially it's like a burned version of the of the cover yeah. with, like, a kind of figure in front of it, which I, I believe is 3D's artwork again. Yeah, so 3D designed it. So the logo for Blue Lines, people who aren't familiar, is effectively a take on the the flammable gas logo, danger sign. And that's taken forward to protection where that appears sort of on a supposedly impenetrable wall, but the logo is mostly sort of burned out, implying that the flammable gas has ignited. 
And then, as you say, superimposed on top of that is a, well, it's, it's Baymax holding a knife and fork. That's how I've written it. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't understand it. I cannot beat that description. <laughs> like, it's absolutely Baymax with a knife and fork. <laughs> Why? <laughs> Baymax scranning down on blue lines. <laughs> Like you, I love the link back to Blue Lines. I think it's really clever. And if we compare it to the cover of Dummy, which, as we both said, is very unremarkable, this is much more imaginative. It's much more evocative. Lovely font. I mean, massive <laughs> type of font. It's a lovely font. Isn't it just the Oasis font, though? No, it's a Helvetica heavy italic. <laughs> I can't believe you've looked up the font. No, I haven't. To be fair, to be fair, I've got the wiki page open. That's fucking unbelievable. Wow. Lovely font. You've literally got the fucking Wikipedia page open and found out what font it is. Wow. You are taking that ball and running with it. I am font game. Welcome to Funk Clash. <laughs> Would you ever listen to an album that had... A poor font game. Well, Comic Sans. No. <laughs> because I would assume that it was a child's album. <laughs> I'd assume it was Aaron Carter. <laughs> He's probably about 35 now. <laughs> Don't care. Or that weird, like, French baby. That was mid-90s. Do you not remember there was, like a, a like, a French dance track that had, like, a toddler on it? No. <laughs> no, I don't remember that at all. And I'm going to move on. <laughs> French, baby. <laughs> it's um, it's a good album cover. And it's better than the one for Dummy. It is. It, like, in terms of our, our clash between the two, it is a far better album cover. Mm-hmm. Massive Attack do good album covers. They do indeed. Okay. So, Tim, how did you first come across this album? So, it wasn't exactly when it got released. But it was certainly before Mezzanine was released in 98. So sometime between 94 and 98, there was a lad in school who was bang into Massive Attack. Strangely, I actually heard the Mad Professor remix album of Protection before I heard the proper album. But yeah, around about 96, perhaps, lad at school said, have a listen to this, you'll really like it. And he was right. How about you? So I'd heard Unfinished Sympathy and I think I may have heard Protection at the time, but for me, my real gateway into Massive Attack was Mezzanine and I fucking loved Mezzanine. I buzzed off that album and I went back, Protection, then Blue Lines. Yeah. So Mezzanine was my was my gateway. So if you decide to keep this in, Tim, I have actually found the French kit. Go on then. So his name is Jordi, and he was known for his hit single Deux de d'être bébé when he was four years old. Okay, fair enough. I um, have no recollection of that whatsoever. I do remember it, like, as I say. Was it on Eurotrash? No, no, it wasn't on the Euro Trash. It was, I'd, I'd seen it somewhere. Like, I don't know why I know this, like, French kid. <laughs> <laughs> this is the problem with me having dual screens. I can Google things at the same time. I'm just thinking your hard drive needs checking, mate. To be <laughs> <laughs> right. So, anyway, you heard Mezzanine. You liked it. You went back. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so 
Well, I'm ready to start going through the tracks. Yeah, I, th- I think it's it's right to do so. So we open with the titular title from the album, Protection, with Tracy Thorne on vocals. She of everything but the girl. Indeed. And a very famous Michel Gondry directed music video. It's a really good video. It's a great video. It's really cleverly done. So it's a video like a sort of it's done like a one take, going back to what we we're talking about mm-hmm. with, with OK Go earlier. But it uses really cleverly uses camera angles and geometry, if you like, to create some really interesting effects in a similar way to the Jamiroquai video Virtual Insanity mm-hmm. a couple of years later. Yeah, I, it's a really, really iconic video. And as as you said last week, it won the MTV Award for, for Best Music Video, and deservedly so. Really iconic video. And, well, Tracy Thorne um, went interviewed uh, relatively recently by Mojo on the release of her autobiography. So she talked about the recording process and she said, no one in the band ever said a word to me about what they wanted or why I was there. It was always a little hard to know whether they liked what I'd done. <laughs> and she, talk, she talks about it in like the mushroom, like, so she says in the interview that she felt that it was mushroom song and he wasn't particularly happy that she'd come in and kind of done her thing, but she'd, She'd interpreted her her own like when in the in the Mojo interview she talks about how she'd listened to it and she'd not really got it and then kind of gone oh right you're going for this kind of minimalist um, style with it and you you want to strip it back and you want to you don't want histrionics or anything like that you want you want it to be quite a basic kind of vocal and she eventually gets that and fuck me she eventually gets that because you know the the performance is is amazing and it has it, it has such a beautifully languid opening as well yeah so uh, let me just talk about tracy thorne mushroom may not have liked what she was doing with the song but i fucking do it's she 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 got it perfectly Her, oh god yeah so as i understand she was sent the backing track on a cassette and they basically said all right off you go sort yourself out and yeah, she gets it perfectly. She's the melody, the tone of her voice, the lyrics themselves. She absolutely nails it. So I'm I'm not a huge, I'm not a massive fan of her generally her vocal work. Like I've never I've never really liked a huge amount of everything must the girl stuff. But like here, it's so perfectly balanced. It's it works so well. You have that cold open and it slowly gradually builds and like I, th- I think what i really appreciate about it as well is that the the way it develops like it's it's a soundscape that gradually gets added to so you mm-hmm. you add the drums in and you add the organ like there's, there's so many different elements that kind of get thrown in just very gradually and yeah I'm like we've talked about before on Album Clash about that I don't particularly like long songs. This is nearly eight minutes long, and I'm fine with every fucking minute of it. Yeah. Because the way it builds, the way it balances her voice and everything that goes on, it's fucking great. So I want to come back and talk about Tracy Thorne's voice. And uh, you talked about what you think of her. Her, her vocal performances outside of this song. I've always thought she's got an incredible voice and she sings really beautifully, but at the same time, I've never been a big fan of 
anything that everything but the girl did or anything she's done outside of this song, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. You know, the, it's the songs and their composition that I have more of an issue with than her voice or her lyrics. I, I think she is an incredibly talented singer and, and lyricist. And this is her showcase, this song. I agree with everything you said about the backing track. The only thing I'd add to it is as it's building all these elements in, they're all individually very subtle and none mm-hmm. of it ever dominates or ever takes away from what she's doing with the vocals. No, the vocals are the absolute anchor to the entire song. Yeah. But whilst I like everything that's sort of gradually blended into the song, it would be nothing if it wasn't for her performance. Absolutely right. And bearing in mind what we said, that she was sent, as I understand it, at least a completed backing track. That is even more testament to her talents and her influence on the song, that she was able to do that with what they created. There's one more thing I want to say about what I think about it, and then there's a couple of facts. So, um, yeah, you mentioned about your opinion of long songs. Mine is very different. I love a long song. But I've spoken in the past about how much I like long songs that occur in different movements. This doesn't really. It's got the same basic hook all the way through. Uh, And you could level at it. Well, it doesn't really go anywhere. But I don't agree. Because exactly as you said, all those elements gradually build. And they build throughout. So the really simple piano riff comes in right at the end. And then you get that sort of soundscape of the rainy day in the background, rain against the window pane, which just creates such atmosphere. And we talked a lot about this when we went through Dummy last week, such a, for me, cinematic soundscape that, as I said, every individual element adds something to this song. And it's a hugely accomplished feat of musical production. So the way I kind of conceive of the way the the sound, the music develops, you know, like when you've got a black coffee mm-hmm. and you pour cream in and it gradually you sort see, of... no, yeah, there I don't because I drink coffee black. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm going to be that dick. You understand the concept that I'm... I am aware of the concept of ruining coffee by adding cream. <laughs> but the way it sort of gradually sort of develops and changes the color of the of the coffee mm-hmm. but it does it in a gradual manner that's how the addition of the different elements in this song gradually change it but subtly a delightfully poetic way of putting it well done <laughs> even though you try to ruin it i mean that's me a <laughs> <laughs> uh, couple of facts then before uh, we move on it was the second single from the album released on the 9th of January, 95. It reached number 14 in the UK, number seven in the Netherlands, and number 52 on the Eurochart Hot 100. Oh, sorry, did I leave you out there? That, I, I wasn't ready. <laughs> like, you just you just went straight Euro, but do I'm you, okay with wanna, it. Okay. There'll be more opportunities later on, I'm sorry. To be honest, I don't think the listeners have that asked about me joining in with your... Um... Of course they are. <laughs> <laughs> so the other the other thing to say, the drum loop and the wah-wah guitar chord is a sample of James Brown's The Payback. Oh, yeah. And it is great. <laughs> well, yeah, the, the, the Payback is a fucking belter so if you're going to sample from anything sample from jb (laughs) yeah absolutely and that goes for james brown or john barnes (laughs) 
Jack Black? No. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, I'm done on protection. Yeah, me too. So let's move on to the second song on the album. Karma Coma, Jamaica Aroma. Ah, no, you are wrong. It is not Jamaican aroma. Until I researched this class, I have thought for 25 years is it not? that it is Jamaican aroma. No, it is not. It is Jamaica and Roma. It is a commentary on the fact that, well, we'll come on to this. Whoever wrote it, it's it, the vocals are performed by Tricky and 3D. Tricky is of Jamaican heritage. 3D is of, well, actually Neapolitan heritage. He's of Italian heritage. That's why the lyric is Jamaica and Roma. But like you, I thought it was Jamaican aroma because I thought it was a song about weed. It's not. <laughs> okay. So, like, now that I have been completely um, undercut. You are not the only person on this show who has misunderstood that uh, lyric. Well, I just said I did. Well, yeah, Someone else will talk about later on who misunderstood it too. And you will be ashamed, as I am, to be linked with him. Oh, fuck. It would... oh, yes, it is him. <laughs> Great. What you can definitely say about this is that Tricky is a brilliant sort of MC rapper and his style works so well in conjunction with 3D's rapping as well because 3D has like quite a languid, laid-back style of rapping. It's yeah, it, it's unusual and it, mix, it mixes really well. And what I'd also like to say is that you've got that kind of rain outro from uh, Protection and then you go into this... You go into Karma Coma, and it has, I, I can't even describe what it is, like this, the sound that it has from, from the intro, but it brings, you, it brings you in straight away, and it mixes so well. The way that the, the rhythm is, is very much percussion-led, mm-hmm. and that is straight away arresting. It's like, oh, okay. Then the bass line comes in, and for me, it's the bass line, which is what this song mm-hmm. is all about. It's fucking filthy, that bass line. I love it. Yeah, and like, I mean, because of the sonorous nature of Tricky's voice as well, is that that bass line kind of complements his Bristolian burr. Like, that's, that's the only way I can kind of describe it. So there is some dispute between Massive Attack and Tricky as to who wrote this song. Tricky, in the NME in 1995, shortly after the release of Max and Craig, said said that he wrote it. He said that I've got animosity towards them for saying that they co-wrote Karma Coma when I did all the music and most of the words. They've got animosity towards me for doing my own thing. To continue that story, on Max and Quay, Tricky re-recorded his own version of Karma Coma, which he called Overcome. In the same year, in 95, Massive Attack's contribution to an album we've spoken about before, the War Child Help album, was also a re-recorded version of Karma Coma, which they called Fake the Aroma. I mean, that's not very subtle, lads. <laughs> no. I mean, there's, there's top-notch dickish behaviour going on by, <laughs> by both parties, really. Yes. Just accept, like, it was a collaboration you all contributed to whatever, like how much, how much everyone contributes. It doesn't really matter. Like, but yeah. Unless it's the Beach Boys and it's Mike Love, in which case. <laughs> well, yeah, Mike Love can fuck off because he's a dick. <laughs> um, what, I, what I also wanted to say is around the chorus, I don't know what the sound is that they that they bring in, but it sounds like like Tuvan throat singing. 
So I've the only thing I can relate it to, and it even this is is woefully inadequate. It's almost like panpipes, wind chime, whatever. I don't know. So I don't you've, know. You've it's, gone. You've gone with panpipes. I've gone with throat singing. It's just. <laughs> It sounds like nothing that I've ever heard. But it's remarkable, though, isn't it? It's great. Absolutely pulls you in. I think that sound gives it a decidedly leftism quality. I can see that. Added to the sort of percussive nature of the rhythm. Yeah, to me, it's redolent of a lot of what was on leftism. Not as hard in terms of the beats, but there's a link there for me, at least. I mean, what what you can definitely say is that the the sampling, the the huge sound that they managed to create, it simultaneously unsettles you, but it also grounds you and balances you. Like it takes you off somewhere that you don't expect, and then pulls you back all the time, like you're a kite or something like that. It's it's really weird. Ooh. So I've my reflection on it very similarly actually is that this is one that. It's simultaneously one that is great to relax to, but that also, if you're in the mood of, I want to groove, I want to move, I want to get down tonight, (laughs) (laughs) Um, it allows you to do that too. It's a song that you can choose your reaction to it, if that makes any Mm -hmm. sense at all. Yeah, it's how you approach the song at the time. Yeah, and to me, that that speaks to how accomplished a piece of music it is. I've said accomplished Mm -hmm. a lot in the last couple of weeks, but there you go. One other thing to say, this was the third single from the album. It was released on the 20th of March, 95. I do not have the chart position for it. I apologise. It also had a a video directed by Jonathan Glazer, and apparently it samples uh, the KLF's dream time in Lake Jackson. Oh, okay. Didn't know that. Do you know what? You've just, like, we need to do the KLF at some point. The White Room is an album that is screaming to be reviewed, surely. I, I don't know what we clashed it off against, but we'll find a way. Yeah, we'll think about that. Okay, and so we move on to the next song on the album, which is three, 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 three. Nice. Three. <laughs> uh, which, by the way, is a sample of the B-Boys 2-3 break. <laughs> Slow down. Which is a great tune by the way, and it's very uh, often sampled in, in many mm-hmm. hip-hop tracks and dance tracks anyway. I mean, and it's the first song that Nicolette appears on, and oh, she sounds great. Brilliant. Very, very Billie Holiday, I've written. Yeah, it's an amazing... So I've um, I've put an amazing kind of jazz voice, beguiling. Oh, nice. Yeah, it, it's, it's a love... It's such a beautiful vocal performance. So... So since we are trying to outdo one another with linguistics, I have said that her waxiness oozes over the top of the backing track. Yeah, that's right. I'm not having that. <laughs> no, that's a, that's a lovely way of describing it. She's, she sounds great. And the simplicity of the song works really well. There's a sort of almost bossa nova type rhythm mm, to, the, yeah. to the drums. There's a synth part in there, which gives it a sort of sousson of acid house. <laughs> um... <laughs> Well, you know, but again, it's the bass line yeah. that gives it the groove. It's, it's another one. It's it's really laid back. But if you want to approach it in a more energetic frame of mind, then you can easily dance to this. Yeah, but it's it's that kind of, um, I hate to use the phrase, and you may recoil from it, the chill out room. Yes, very much so. 
We've spoken about sort of thing before as well. It became a, a catch-all for anything that was slowed down and ambient. Well, yeah, inoffensive ambient music. Yes, exactly. Whereas, if you want to talk about the chemical side of things, the chill-out room plays quite an important part in many people's <laughs> chemical experience. Yeah, some people need it. Yeah, and they exactly. Need, they needed protection. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> quite so. So, no, I know what you mean. It, it has many connotations, that phrase, but it makes perfect sense because this, this very much fits into that theme. I spoke about Uncle a couple of times last week. I'm going to speak about Uncle a couple of times again again this week. And um, this, to me, calls forward to certainly some of the tracks that appeared on War Stories. And again, you can just see how James Lavelle used a lot of the sounds that were around at this time to influence what Uncle continued to produce. And, and to be fair, you know, James Lavelle, he was the founder of Mowax Records. Mowax obviously was, was, was who DJ Shadow was signed to. So I am certainly not accusing James Lavelle of being a, a rip-off artist. Far from it. We've already said in the past we're big fans of of Uncle mm-hmm. stuff. But to me, there's a real clear lineage between some of the tracks on both of these albums and, and, and the stuff that Uncle have done. Yeah, I mean, these two are these two albums, these two artists don't exist. Uncle never gets yeah. to, to work, really. Fair point. Okay, so I like three. Yeah, three, three, three. <laughs> I, I do really like it. And I love I love that little um refrain really like it really yeah, brings really brings you back okay so we'll move on to weatherstorm a instrumental track mm. i mean fuck me you're showing your classical influences here well i would say more jazz influences than classical with mm. the piano part so i want to just read a quote from, from 3d as to as to why there are no vocals on this track in an interview with Future Music magazine in 94, which again is taken from that Irish fan site Kev mentioned, he said, why there are no vocals? That's why there aren't any vocals on this track, he said, because the vibe wasn't right. With Weatherstorm, we met up with this brilliant pianist called Craig Armstrong, stretches lad, and got him <laughs> to record the piano melody. <laughs> we just felt the track didn't need anything else. So I was going to say Lance's lad. <laughs> um, I disagree with 3D. There's a lot to like on this. I think the piano is it's phenomenally played, but it doesn't go anywhere. It goes on too long. It's five minutes long. As Yeah, it's yeah. five minutes long. It's repetitive. It's not, like if it was about three minutes long, you go, yeah, all right. I like I like that. There's there's some nice stuff going on. There's some, yeah. some nice themes working through the music, but at five minutes, it's it's too much. I agree. This, so you've just talked about the chill-out room. I'm going to be quite damning here. This is very much Sunday evening in the hotel lounge bar. Wow. It is, though. And and maybe that's because of the success of this album and the success of Massive Attack, that this sound has been copied and photocopied and, you know, diluted that much. But that's what it reminds me of. The repetitive bass line. Nice twiddly piano play. As I say, it's really, really good, but it doesn't go anywhere. Yeah, sorry. That, that, that might seem harsh, but that's my reflection on it. I think I think maybe you are a little too harsh on it. Like, I'd, Well, maybe the description of it being hotel bar is maybe a bit too far, but I understand the point. It doesn't do enough to justify itself. Okay, let's move on. Um, we go on to Spineglass. Featuring 
Horace Andy. And fuck me, like, if you didn't know that Massive Attack um, had a background in sound systems, in re- you know, that that kind of thing, fuck me, well, you know it now after, after hearing this song. Yes, indeed. So uh, not only is this featuring vocals by Horace Andy, it is a cover of his 1983 song mm-hmm. of the same name. And it sounds very dancehall, very dub reggae. Yeah. I really like Horace Andy's voice. It's really distinctive. He's got a, well, to me, it's a very androgynous voice mm-hmm. that there is. You can listen to the same song over and over again and, and you hear it once and it's a, no, it's a woman singing that. And it's like, no, 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 it's a man singing that. And it's that affected tremolo style as well that it's just, well, it's very Shirley Bassey, actually. <laughs> so I've, I've got some Horace Andy stuff and... I like I like his voice. I didn't mean that as a criticism. No, no, no. I understand that, but like I understand what you mean. Like it's it is kind of, and maybe that's why I like it because obviously I've not been shy about my love of Bowie and <laughs> and you know that that kind of oeuvre. And so Horace Andy having a sort of slightly androgynous voice, like yeah, I'm I'm bang into it. And um, Spying Glass. It is that proper sound system stuff, and yeah. like I'm bang into it. Like it works really well. It's it's mellow. The performance is really good. Like everything is balanced really well. The only the only criticism I'd have of it is that it's five minutes twenty, and maybe could lose about a minute. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. What I will say is, so firstly, it's a different style. As mm-hmm. we've just talked yeah. about, but at the same time, it still fits with the themes and, and the sound mm-hmm. of, the, of the album. It doesn't feel out of place at all. To your point about the length, I understand what you're saying, and to an extent, I agree. But there's a very simple synth part that comes in about halfway through, about the three minute mark, which elevates it and gives gives a sort of added edginess and a more modern sound to what we've said. Sounds more like a traditional dance hall mm-hmm. style track. And that keeps me engaged through the length of the track. I think without it, I would wholeheartedly agree with you. But that even just such a simple riff that is just a refrain, as I say, keeps me engaged, keeps me interested. So I didn't feel that as profoundly as, as you. Mm-hmm. This this is what always happens um, in terms of length. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes, that's true. I am clearly more uh, comfortable with longer things than you are. No, or maybe that you feel the need to um, pretend that you are comfortable with long things. <laughs> I, I'm I'm talking about music, and uh, I have no idea what you're referring to here. But I suggest we move on. No, I'm I'm talking about music. What 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 else could we be talking about? <laughs> um. Right, should we just stop this? Because this is fucking... We're better than this. Speaking of better than this... Better things. (laughs) And Tracy Thorne is on vocals again. And um, wow. So what what I noted down, first and foremost, is the, the bass opening is phenomenal. But Tracy Thorne's voice is... It is absolutely the... The glue is the sumptuous. Oh, some yes, sumptuous is the is the perfect word to describe it. It's like the caramel going round your treat your sticky toffee pudding. <laughs> oh, nice! I like that. I Fan, like that. A fancy bit of sticky toffee pudding. <laughs> to be honest, bit of caramel, lovely stuff. 
Other sticky toffee puddings are available, but if Carmel would like to send us some free <laughs> sugary desserts, sound uh, with that. We will not object. <laughs> Absolutely fine. In fact, any sticky toffee pudding provider, bang into it. Yeah, quite right. We've got no cuprinol, <laughs> so no, we've got fuck all yet. It's ridiculous. No, I, I, even some rock. Give me some rock. Do you, mean, <laughs> like, do you mean like rock from Blackpool, or do you mean like Rocky? <laughs> like a bit of a bit of squidgy brown. Um, no comment. <laughs> <laughs> um, so there's a couple of things I want to talk about. This there's another James Brown sample on this, so it's the main the main drum and chord sound, and the bass line. In fact, is a sample of uh, "Never Can Say Goodbye" by James Brown. I just want to read a quote from Mushroom on the drums. There's like a dolphin hitting its head against the side of a submarine. It's like an exclamation mark at the end of each chorus. I mean, it is definitely there. And that is pretty much exactly what it sounds like. I mean, I'd never thought of it as a dolphin hitting his head against a submarine. But now now that it has been pointed out to me, it sounds like a dolphin hitting his head against a submarine. So much so that I am now deeply concerned that Massive Attack commandeered a submarine and hired James Cameron to kidnap a dolphin and smack the dolphin's head against the side of the submarine. Was it Red October? <laughs> Was it in the middle of a crazy Ivan? Like, this is what we need to know. Back to the song. There are some phenomenal lyrics in here. We've talked about mm-hmm. the, the sumptuous sound of Tracy Thorne's voice, but there's a real bitterness and spike to some of these lyrics. You say the magic's gone, well, I'm not a magician. You say the spark's gone, well, I'm not an electrician. And save your line about needing to be free, all that bullshit, babe, you just want rid of me. That is a great lyric. Oh, yeah. I mean, we've talked about we we enjoy a a lyric that has proper fucking bitterness to it, and that has, that has poison nailed into it. Yeah, it does. So there was one of the tracks last week, and apologies, I forget which one it was that I said sounds the most similar to what's on protection. This is this track on protection that sounds the most similar to what's mm-hmm. on dummy, and it's to me, it's the it's the drum loop that gives it that. Yeah, you can you can hear there's a, there's a link. And it, it's a lazy thing, the kind of trip-hop thing links everyone together. It's just because the looping on certain songs is similar. Yeah, indeed. Well, we, we've been lazy and done the links. So. We have, that's true. Actually, we've fallen into the same lazy trap as everyone else. Well, fuck it, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> let's move on to Eurochild. <laughs> I'm glad. Another one with vocals by Tricky. Yes, and well, the vocals by Tricky in 3D and their counterpoint rapping is fucking great. Like, I, I enjoy it so much. It's a great song, this. This, so even more than Karma Coma, this sounds like Max and Quay. It does. It sounds, mm-hmm. it sounds like what Tricky was, was putting out. Dark. Yeah. Brooding. But as as I said before, at the same time, it's got a funk to it. It's danceable. The baseline again, it's absolutely filthy. And along with that drum beat, it's just the thing that grounds this tune and anchors it and allows Tricky and 3D to 
to do their stuff over the top of it. It's really, really good track, this. So the jazz trumpet throughout is beautiful. And like, I know I've sort of talked about 3D's rapping, but that kind of languid approach, it works in such beautiful balance with Tricky's much harsher, gruffer sound. Yeah, it's beautiful. It it works it works a re- really well. It does work really well and it's a shame as much as I love Max and Quay, it's a shame that Tricky plays no part in in, in mezzanine because you think of of you know, like imagine if inertia creeps oh, was a god. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't need to say anything else Filth. do I? Imagine how good that's yeah. It's a good enough track already, but yeah. Okay, let's let's move on to the next song. So we move on to Sly, which was the um, opening single from the album, and an odd choice as the 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 single from the album, the first thing. Yeah, it didn't do badly though. It got to number twenty four in the UK, so it wasn't it wasn't a smash hit by any means. But neither was it a complete flop. And, and don't get me wrong, like Nicolette sounds absolutely brilliant on this. Like, I've, I've, so I've written here, it sounds like something that David Arnold would write for a mid 90s Bond. Like, honestly, it sounds like it should be on the um, GoldenEye soundtrack. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. So I'm going to read a quote first and then I'm going to okay. this hive mind again here. So, yeah, uh, Mushroom said, doesn't that remind you of South Sea Islands and James Bond? We were going for the spies and palm trees sound. Yes, mission accomplished. It has got a very John Barry and David Arnold sound. The strings are very play dead. Mm -hmm. You know, to to get it away from Bond, you've got, and it's around a similar sort of time, isn't it? Bjork and David Arnold. Yeah, yeah. And obviously play dead, you know, Nellie Hooper, like it's, it's it's all kind of linked in. There's all a connection, yeah, exactly. The strings on this were arranged by Craig Armstrong, who who played the piano on on Weatherstorm earlier. I think that David Arnold, John Barry atmosphere is amplified by... I I said that that Nicolette sounded really Billie Holiday earlier on. Here, to me, there's a distinct Shirley Bassey affectation in the way she's singing. Oh, God, yeah. And it sounds great. Yeah. Obviously, we're talking Bond. We're talking referencing Shirley Bassey is the right thing because it does have that absolute thing about her. Yeah, definitely. And and I'm going to mention Uncle again here. It's another one where I can see how this influences what mm-hmm. Uncle did. You know, tracks like Lonely Souls. Yeah. It, it's, a, it's, a, it's an obvious and easy thing to say with the strings, but to me, it's it's very clearly there. And um, it's a lovely bit of work. Yeah, it is. Okay. So then we move on to the instrumental, Heat Miser. Belter. Well, I'll let you talk about it and then I'll have, I'll have some chats. Okay. So there's a piano riff which is pure John Carpenter and Halloween. It also seems to have inspired the majority of the Matrix soundtrack. (laughs) The drums on this are absolutely huge. Yeah. I love this. I think it's really, it's tracks like this with the way that they, as we spoke about with protection, actually, with the way that they build and different elements come in at different times Mm. and then come back in and go out. This is what I love about Massive Attack. 
It's just great. I really, really like Heat Miser. So for me, it takes a while to get going, but it really develops well as an instrumental. Like I noted down, and I don't know if you feel the same, it sounds like it should soundtrack a moody driving scene in a sci-fi movie. Well, yeah, absolutely. I agree with you. And, and I'd, I'd come back to what I said about the John Carpenter Halloween mm-hmm. similarity in that little piano part. That's Yeah, that's a good shout. So listening to listening to Heat Miser, I had in mind Blade Runner. Oh, yeah, okay, yeah. It, like, it, it wasn't necessarily full Vangelis, but, it, you know, it had those elements about it that really, really spoke to me. No, good shout, that. The other thing I want to say... There's a constant deep breathing track, mm-hmm. which is apparently sort of the five of them in the studio. I'm getting massive higher than the sun vibes listening to that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I sort of know where you're coming from with it takes a while to get going, but... I'm okay with that, though. Yeah, okay, okay, fine. Because um, I love the way it builds, personally. Mm-hmm. Everything adds to that sense of unease. It's not a criticism that it takes a while to get going. It does take a while to get going, but... You earn mm-hmm. the journey. Yeah, fair play. Well, it's worth saying at this point, because I'm going to say it again in a bit. So we're nine tracks in, and we're already over 45 minutes. So brevity was not at the forefront of their minds when they recorded this album. No, like, they, they didn't have a strong producer who was saying, where's the hits? <laughs> yeah. Which is strange, because they did have some hits. No, actually, like that that's unfair to say that. It's not that they didn't have a strong producer, it's that they weren't necessarily looking for a three-minute pop song. Yeah, exactly. But they've never been like that. Yeah, Even course. Unfinished Sympathy is, is, is five and five plus minutes long, isn't it? Well, know, exactly. So. It's, it's not a traditional pop song. Okay, so we then move on to the final um, song on the album, Light My Fire, a cover of The Doors song. Horace Andy, um, he apparently used to um, do it all the time in his um, sets, and that's kind of how um, Massive Attack got the idea to include it on the album. What do you think? What What the fuck is this? <laughs> why is this? Why not? Not only why is this on the album? Why is it the closer? I'm sorry, it's dreadful. It's not great. I like Horace Andy. I like Light My Fire. I do not like this cover. It doesn't go anywhere. And I think for me, the more importantly, if you're covering something and you include it on your album, I want you to do something with it. Something interesting. Yeah. Like you've kind of done a bit of a dub version of it, but it doesn't work. It, it's not great. Not only is it a dub version, why are there just fucking weird scratched loops of gunfire in the background? What, what the fuck is this? It just... To me, this smacks of, well, the record company has demanded 10 tracks or they won't put the album out, so we'll fucking show them. We'll stick this on the end. We'll stick Horace on. What the f- Yeah, it's... I also don't think it's a live... So it says live at UK. To me, it sounds like something that was done in a sound check and then they stuck a load of crowd noise on later. It's not... This is, you know... This is bad. Yeah, and b- between the two of us, I'm more likely to have more sympathy to, to this, and it does not work at all. I-, I wouldn't go so far as to say that I'd rather listen to Will Young's cover of Light My Fire, but it's closer than you might think. <laughs> <laughs> it does not work, and I think it... 
like and I've seen reviews where people say if you finish on Heat Miser, you finish on a high. You basically undercut the album by your ending. Hugely. I've just said two minutes ago, you've already got 45 minutes worth of really strong material there. Okay, neither of us are particularly fond of Weatherstorm, but it's better than this. If, yeah, weird choice, weird choice. Don't get it. You know, they wanted to. They wanted to include a Horace Andy tune. Okay, fair enough. So that is the end of the album. It is. So we move on to the reviews, really, and they were generally pretty good. Eight out of ten in the NME. Five out of five in Select. Four stars in the Rolling Stone. So Paul Evans, um, in his Rolling Stone interview. Review, sorry. Uh, it says, cool, sexy stuff. It smoothly fuses dub, club, and soul, grounding its grace in sampled hip-hop beats. Matt Hall, in the five-star select review, said, Massive Attack make music like no one else. Not an easy thing to do, but for which we should all be eternally grateful. Hmm. So, you know, it did well. It, it, it did well. So you mentioned the enemy review. I just want to read a couple of quotes from that actual the, the review. So it was it was Tom Ke- Ted Kessler, sorry. Uh, he said it's no surprise that their second chapter starts with a funeral backbeat and mournful guitar chop and Tracy Thorne. And while it certainly isn't the dramatic lane switch that the trio would have you believe, they do occasionally scuttle into the middle of the road. Hence, some of it sounds like people succumbing to creeping gin and spliff psychosis, yet other parts sound less predictably like a rainy night in Belgium. Once again, however, they've painted a beautiful record from many shades of blue. It's very verbose, but I can see Mm -hmm. what he's saying. Um, I just want to read one retrospective, and that's from John Bush from the oft-quoted by us all music. He says, Massive Attack's sophomore effort could never be as stunning as Blue Lines, and a slight drop in production and songwriting quality made comparisons easy. Even though the production is just as intriguing as on Blue Lines, there's a bit lacking here, and Massive Attack doesn't summon quite the emotional power they did previously. Though it's still miles ahead of the growing raft of trip-hop making the rounds in the mid-90s, protection is rather a disappointment, which... Sounds a little harsh, but given what we've just said about the last track on the album, you can perhaps understand where that sentiment comes from. Yeah, you know, I can understand it given that Blue Lines was so critically acclaimed that it was always going to be hard for them to follow up with something that was... But do you know what? Given everything, that they created an album that didn't disappoint yeah. There are elements that you can criticise about it, but there are elements that you can criticise about Blue Lines. There are elements you can criticise about Mezzanine. You know, I agree. Yeah, well, very well said. Okay, shall we get to Nobby? With due um, annoyance prepared. I mean, the f- I'm just going to warn you, this might take a couple of minutes, guys, because <laughs> okay, well, he's written some words here. So what did Robert Criscow say? Let's hear Trip hop without pain or mess, thick textured and clean etched, doing a solid for vocalists in need. They return Tracy Thorne's favour with interest, including an introduction to unknown but equal Nicolette. 
and stretching instrumentals into a weird comfort zone, for example, the almost literally atmospheric weather storm, which I assume was a little too unusual for the funk light hedonists in producer Nellie Hooper's own band. Right. So firstly, that is a single sentence. I'm not finished yet, Kev. All of that I've just read is a single sentence of prose. Fucking hell. May I continue? Please. <clears throat> Definitive Karma Coma, a title that would say everything you need to know about the killing pleasures of killer weed if Tricky's stoned vocal didn't say so much more. <laughs> That's not what it's about. Although you and I both made the same mistake. So, yeah. <laughs> so we, unfortunately, we can't um, pull him up on that. No, we can't. I mean, in all seriousness, I've read that multiple times. It's a word soup. It doesn't make any sense to me whatsoever. What the fuck does any of that mean? Alphabetty spaghetti. <laughs> I mean, to give him some credit, at least for the first time perhaps ever, he's mentioned a couple of the actual songs on the album. But he's, <laughs> I still can't tell what the fucking he thinks about them. Though. No, absolutely not a fucking clue. <laughs> bellend. He is a bellend. Should we do some legacy? Yeah, let's do it. So I, th- I think really the the legacy of this is that Massive Attack established themselves and managed to, in the aftermath of obviously the loss of their main sole vocalist and production gurus, the, their manager and everything, they managed to establish themselves and move forward. And they arguably went on to greater success after this album with Mezzanine which yeah. was fucking huge when it was yeah. released. You, well, you, it was huge. So Mezzanine itself, released in 98, so that sold 4 million copies. So it sold twice as many as, as Protection. It reached number one in the UK. It reached number 60 in the US. It won them loads of awards. So, yeah, Me- Mezzanine is, as we said at the start of the show, really, it's the album that really established Massive Attack as a global act. I would say the legacy of, of protection is a, it's a little bit weird. Mm-hmm. And as we've said, because it's sandwiched between two albums that are now seen as classics, but given that commercially, at least, protection heavily outperformed Blue Lines, it, it's sort of seen as the, as the well, the difficult middle child, if you like, between, between the first three albums. Yeah, it's the weird thing about protection that... Blue Lines is obviously Genesis, um, the start of Massive Attack story, at least mm-hmm. for for the music press and everything. But the it, as you say, Protection did much better than it. But mm-hmm. Blue Lines is a start. Mezzanine is essentially their apogee, where they it's the pinnacle. Yeah, yeah, you know where they where they get their greatest success. So it never really gets the the kudos that it deserves. No, no, I, I agree. In terms of what happened to the band, so obviously Tricky left, as, as we said. They What they did in that interim between Protection and Mezzanine is they started their own record label, um, which they called Melancholic. Never a good idea. Well, they signed a few artists to it who they'd worked with, Craig Armstrong, Horace Andy, among others. And the ethos of that label was to avoid the influence of record labels, effectively, to give the artists freedom over the, the art they wanted to create. So fair enough. 
they were still together as a band in 97. They released the single Rising Sun, which reached number 11 in the UK. That would go on to be featured on Mezzanine. And number 11, that was their biggest hit in the UK at the time. Uh, they also contributed two tracks to the soundtrack of the Bruce Willis film, The Jackal. It's not a very good film. <laughs> <laughs> that included Dissolved Girl, which would not only uh, make it onto Mezzanine, but was also featured in The Matrix in the scene at which Neo falls asleep in front of his computer before getting a, a, an instant message from Morpheus. Indeed. The... Recording of Mezzanine, it seems, wasn't particularly straightforward and the sessions were quite difficult. You know, the classic phrase, musical differences within the band, in particular Mushroom, was becoming quite disillusioned with the direction that 3D wanted to take the band in. They'd recruited producer Neil Davidge and basically he was essentially having to balance the three separate visions of 3D Mushroom and Daddy G as well to create something with some degree of, of cohesion. I mean, whatever he did, it very much succeeded because mm -hmm. uh, it's an incredible album. It was huge commercially, as we've already said. Uh, and for me, at least, is, is their high point. It's, it's a brilliant album. They've released two albums since then. So in 2003, they released 100th Window. And in 2010, they released Heligoland. They're both... They're both all right. I, I, you know, I don't mind them. A hundredth window, you know, is there was a lot of stuff going on with the band at the time. Um, yeah, and the individual members. Heligoland isn't a bad album at all. Like, there's some really good, there's some really strong stuff on there. Indeed, there is. I, I agree. They're still together. Their most recent release, they released the EP Utopia in July last year. So, as we said a minute ago, whilst the Legacy of Protection perhaps isn't as iconic as some of the other albums we've covered on Album Clash. I think what it did do is it gave Massive Attack a platform to really become one of the most enduring and established and influential electronic bands, electronic acts that the UK has ever produced. It's a, yeah, it cemented their legacy, really. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, that's about it. Unless there's anything from you. No, no. All right, we should probably get to it then. Best song, worst song? Okay. For me, it's a, it's a tricky because Karma Coma's Amazing 3 is really good. Nice pun, by the way. <laughs> Heat Miser is an amazing piece of work. But if I'm truly honest, and obviously being the um, absolute whore that I am, the best song on the album is without question protection. It is a phenomenal piece of work. And the weakest song for me on the album is Light My Fire. It's no good. So there's no disagreement whatsoever from this side of the fence. I mean, I, I, I want to. So you've given a shout out as a heat miser, to which I agree. I also really like Euro Child. I think it's, I prefer it to Karma Coma, actually. I think it's a, it's a really great tune. But yeah, I can't look past Protection as the best song on the album. It is eight minutes of soulful, dark, trip hop. It's just a phenomenal track. Mm. And as we said, Tracy Thorne, she's remarkable on it. And yeah, the worst song is Light My Fire. All I will add to what you've said is it just it leaves a really sour taste in the mouth from what has been, before that point, a really enjoyable experience. Yeah, I, I can't disagree with everything, anything that you said. Okay, let's get down to brass tacks and score these albums. 
So as is traditional, because it is my my clash that I will give my score for the first album first and mm-hmm. the second album second. So over to you. Yeah. So Dummy, it's an amazing, amazing piece of work. From the absolute get-go, you are pulled in and then you are taken on the journey of in into into wherever you wherever your mindscape wants to take you. I'm a massive fan of a spy film, and this album I could see soundtracking any you know the spy who came in from the cold or any kind of thing mm-hmm. like that. It's a brilliant album. There's so much killer, and there is nothing filler here. Even it's a fire, which I don't, which I I openly admit I may not like because it unsettles me <laughs> when I listen to it because it is not what I expected on the album because I know the rest of the album from Mm. listening to it so many times. It's got roads on it. It's got numb on it. It's got glory box. It's eight and a half out of 10. It's so strong. Okay. Eight and a half out of 10. I'm going to say some very similar things to you. Uh, So I'm going to try and be brief. I I love this album. And as I said, right at the start of last week's show, I regret that I didn't come to it sooner. I completely agree with the band. It became miscategorized. I think this is an album to play loudly. This is an album that deserves your undivided attention. Albeit, as we said last week, you you approach and you enjoy music however you want to. To me, I can't play this album in the background. I've got to listen to it. it. It is a classic of the 90s. It's a classic of all time. It's a classic of electronic music, whatever you want to say. It seamlessly blends musical influences, musical styles, and in doing so creates something completely unique that is incredibly innovative. It is a remarkable achievement. All of the tracks you called out, Wandering Star, Rose, which we both said is the best track on the album, Glory Box, Sour Times. I'm going to go a little bit higher. I'm going nine out of ten. Okay, so protection. Protection. Yeah, okay. I really like Protection in a similar way to what I've just said about Dummy. It's dark, it's brooding, it's sinister. But at the same time, it's it's got a soulful quality. It's danceable. It's got a, a groove and a funk throughout. There's four or five really great tracks on here. Both of the tracks that Tricky sings, the title track, as we've said, Heat Miser, uh, off the top of my head, Sly, I really like. It gets right to the heart of what I love about Massive Attack, as I said earlier. However, there's a couple of letdowns. We've spoken about Light My Fire. It's bad. And it's a really disappointing way to end an album of such quality. I don't like Weather Storm. No, there's things to like on Weather Storm, but it is a disappointment compared to what went before it on the album and what followed it. And on the track of only 10 albums, to have two disappointments, you know, really is going to impact on the score for me. When you announced this clash a couple of weeks ago, I thought it was going to be a lot closer. I thought I was going to really struggle to choose between the two albums. But as it turns out, that's not the case. Seven and a half out of ten for protection for me. Okay. So unfortunately for the listeners, there's not going to be a huge amount of disagreements, of controversy (laughs) in this. There are some incredible incredible moments so sly heat miser spying glass i think is is a great tune three 
protection, karma coma. I think there's some there's some really good stuff going on on this album. But Weatherstorm goes on too long. Light My Fire is not. It's it's just not very good. Euro Child, you know, it's not a bad song, but. Oh, so there's one disagreement because I really like your child, but anyway, sorry. It's 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 not a bad it's not a bad song, and you know the, there are some things to like about it. But similar to you, that I thought when we were approaching it, and again, two albums that I listened to a lot back in the nineties, early two thousands, not necessarily listened to a huge amount relatively recently. I thought this was going to be a much closer clash, but for me, it's not at all. It's a good album, but it's not a great album. And so for me, it's a 7 out of 10. Yeah, okay. Okay, so the differential is the same mm-hmm. between our scoring, which, if I'm right, that means that Protection gets 14.5, whereas Dummy gets 17.5. So, yeah, not all that close, as it turns out. No. But the right decision. But right, yeah, because yeah. Dummy's a better album. Now, if we if we were doing Mezzanine against Dummy, then that's a, that's a different choice, yeah. Much harder to choose between those two. And that's what I thought you were going to go with when you when you said Dummy. But I, I, I did consider it, but then, like, obviously these came out around the same time, so it, it, it's... Yeah. No, it's, it's fair. It was, a, it was a good choice, and I was glad to, to have the chance to compare the two albums. Yeah, so well done. Good good picks. Uh, speaking of which, shall we go and have a look at what we're going to go through over the next couple of weeks? Yes, I, I'm really intrigued. Okay, so we're doing musical cities, yeah? That's the plan. All right. Well, the first thing I'm going to say is we're leaving the 90s. We've done enough 90s. We've, we've, we, yeah, exactly. We've, we've, we've done too many clashes in the 90s over recent weeks, so we're going we're gonna to go somewhere else, uh, geographically and temporally. Uh, we're also leaving the UK. Uh, so we're going to America. Okay. Can I guess the city? Uh, no, you can't. You're going to have to wait. Oh. <laughs> we're doing famous musical cities. And I'm cheating a bit here because not both of the artists are from the same city, but I write the rules. <laughs> what tour of famous musical cities would be complete without visiting Detroit? Okay. I'm already you've reeled me in. We are going to Motown, baby. Oh. And we're going to the 70s. Okay. All right. So next week, well, so part of my thinking for this is it's Black History Month, and I want to go through two albums which are cultural milestones of of black music and of the black civil rights movement, actually, in the States at this time. So, yeah, we're doing Motown. Next week, we're going 50 years back in time, and I'm going to take us through Marvin Gaye's What's Going On. (laughs) And Kevin, in a fortnight's time, would you like to hazard a guess at what I'm going to be asking you to take us through? Would it be something by Mr. Wonder? It would be something by Mr. Wonder. I'm going to ask you to take us through 1973's Inner Visions. (laughs) Two albums that I have a long history with. Yep, indeed. So yeah, as I said, Black History Month, Motown, it seemed too open a goal to miss. And so that's what we're doing. I am bang into this. And look, we we have talked off, off pod before and I've said that I wanted to get 
more soul in here. Yeah, I'm I'm bang into this. Good. I'm pleased because I'm looking forward to it as well. And like you, I think this is going to be potentially a difficult call between the two albums. So yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's some really good stuff. Great. Okay. So, well, I guess that pretty much wraps it up for today, except for, uh, well, it's your time to shine, Kev. Okay, so based on earlier this earlier this week that we record on, if you want to um, access content that's not going to collapse when Facebook uh, <laughs> manages to change something in their back rooms, then you can check out our Twitter at Clash Album. If um, Instagram is working at this time, <laughs> who knows? Um, you can check out our carefully curated content at Clash Album. Or um, you can go resolutely old school and will not be affected by anything Mark Zuckerberg presses <laughs> by sending us an email to albumclash at gmail.com. Brilliant. Good stuff. Can, can I just say, I love the fact that Facebook's apparent solution to the problems they had was literally to go and turn it off and turn it back on again. That's I mean, they, they literally... Did. They literally spoke to their IT department and they just went, switch it on and off. <laughs> they reset the service. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, anyone might think that one company having such a stranglehold over so many people's communications with their friends and their loved ones might be a problem. But um, who am I to comment on such things? Well, exactly. I mean, you would think that the Monopolies Act or something like that might... Um, preclude such behavior but you know who are we to um discuss such things exactly we are mere cogs in the great machine that i like to call bertha <laughs> big bertha <laughs> indeed <laughs> okay as usual guys thank you very much for listening please get involved head over to insta we know many of you do head over to twitter and if you can wade through all the shite tell us what you think of uh of the show what you want us to cover or if you if you want to send us a message to show us that you really are actually listening please send us a picture of um, your penis Pigeon street or your penis <laughs> no i don't want pictures of penises i want a picture of a pigeon from pigeon street long distance because, clara no i want a picture from a pigeon from yeah, pigeon street well long that's, distance clara was from pigeon street i don't care did, did someone want a picture of long-distance long Clara? No, but I did. And actually, we need more long-distance Claras in the UK. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's, got, she's gone back to Slovakia. <laughs> long-distance Ludmilla. <laughs> no, she's from Belarus. <laughs> I cannot leave because of a terrible dictator. <laughs> allegedly, allegedly. No, not allegedly. He is a terrible dictator. <laughs> I'm going to go. <laughs> I want to go to bed. <laughs> Thanks for listening, guys. Oh, so it's a pigeon street. <laughs> Just a reminder, for the next clash, you need to review Marvin Gaye's What's Going On and Stevie Wonder's Inner Visions. Boom. There you go. Uh, yeah, that's been Album Clash. We shall see you next week. Until then, take care of yourselves today. Tell her.